you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 7 tonight. Uh, someplace in the house is my brother Chet Lowe. I haven't seen him yet, but uh, we're leaving together. We were going to try and walk or run, but it's a little too far, so I'm out of shape. Tonight, our second part of Believers in the Law. And some people look at this central part of the seventh chapter, and it's kind of like, it's almost like it's redundant. But it is not redundant. The Holy Spirit takes time to reiterate something. There's a reason. And I think in this case, the main reason is this. We as Christians, because we have been saved by grace through faith, our natural tendency is to then kind of wonder the very question that's asked here. Okay, well, if that's true, then why can't I really just kind of do whatever I want to do? Why can't I live my life as I please? What good is all of the law? What good was those things that God spoke through the prophets? What good is the word spoken through Moses? What good are the Ten Commandments? Why is that important? And we find now a second aspect to that. And really, as we saw last time, what we really have to understand is that what God's doing with this is, is aligning us. So, as we now continue this, this picture, we'll pick up in verse 7. And I would remind you wholeheartedly to think this way. Chapters 3 through 8 really weave a, a totality of a story. We have themes of grace. We have themes of faith. We have themes of sin. We have themes of righteousness. And in the central bit of this is the law. And all of those things are woven together. And as the body of Christ, we must be sure that we do not throw out the centrality of what God has always commanded us to be. And that is holy as he is holy. The only difference is, is he's made a way by grace. But his standard is exactly the same as it's always been. He hasn't changed one iota. And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 7. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the way that you work in and to us and through us. And pray now that as we study your word, that you would bless us with the understanding of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, he goes back to this way that he's been speaking to us now since chapter 3. What shall we say then? He asks a question, anticipating what we would think, anticipating by the Holy Spirit what mankind has always thought. Is the law sin? You see, you could almost take it so far as if, if the law can't be kept, and if the law shows mankind's wickedness, there is a question that actually comes to us, is the, is the law actually even good? Is the law sin? Is the law somehow absolutely wrong? And of course the answer to that is the answer that he's given multiple times now. This will be the sixth time. There will be one more. He says, certainly not. He gives the strongest negative answer that you can find in the Greek language. Again, meo genitum. Not on your life. And he actually adds to it this time. He says, on the contrary, exactly the opposite is true, in other words. I would have not known sin except through the law. 
For I would not have known the covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He's using this incredible picture of our understanding as it changes, as it transforms. As we go from people without God's grace to people with God's grace. And the interesting thing is when you look at the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of sin always does exactly what this says. It actually increases oftentimes our desire to sin all the more. Sometimes we don't know something's wrong. You, you want to get somebody to actually engage in some evil behavior, tell them it's wrong. Tell them they're not supposed to do that. What happens when you tell your children, don't go there? First thing they do is start trying to figure out how to get there. Because they figure there must be something you're keeping from them. And so it's not the law that's bad. It's that inherent sin nature that's within us that always tests the limits of what the word says. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And it killed me. And therefore the law is holy. And the commandment holy. And just. And good. Has then what is good become death to me? And again he says, Male genito. No way on this earth but sin. That it might appear sin. That you'd truly be able to identify the problem. That you'd know what's wrong. That there wouldn't be any guesswork. You see, there's a lot of things that we can look at that we kind of have an inkling is wrong. But because of what God's Word says, we know they're really wrong. You see, some people think bitterness is not a sin. But the law of God says bitterness is a sin. It even goes on to tell us it's as rottenness to our bones. It actually destroys you from the inside out. You see, you might be tempted to think that bitterness is okay, but the law comes alongside and says, no, it's really wrong. And it helps you understand exactly the depths of that sin. But that sin was producing death in me through what is good. So I identify it's like, oh, man. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. When you hear these things, to put it in perspective, it's good to go to a Jewish perspective. When you think about the law itself, and when we say the law, what we're referring to as Christians is the entirety of what Scripture says, the whole Bible. So we mean it to, to, to really say God's word. It's the easiest way to understand it. When we say the law of God, we're saying everything God has said, we want to do that and be that. But to the hearer in that day, if you were to refine it, the Old Testament law, some facts about it, 
There were actually 414 individual laws. There were laws. By the time the New Testament came around, the Jewish rabbis had kind of summed all those things up. And they'd made 613 commandments. And in those commandments, 248 of them were mandates. Those are things you absolutely must do. And 635 of them were prohibitions. You really should not do that. That's prohibited. So when you think of the law, I don't know how many of you can even rattle off a hundred laws. I know I can't. I'd probably guess and get, you know, maybe someplace in general vicinity. But that's a lot of laws, amen? So imagine living your life underneath that type of a structure. And so those mandates that were given, they involved everything. Temple worship, sacrifices, how you were to make vows, rituals, what you did in your giving. It wasn't that you just needed to give to God. You had specific parts of everything you took in that had to be donated to God. You had the temple tax, you had the priest tax, you had the normal tithe, you had the grain offering, the wave offering, the bread offering. You had the offering for your animals, you had the offering for your fields. By the time it was all said and done, you didn't have a clue whether you even gave the right offering or not. It was nearly impossible. Judicial matters, legal rights, obligation, the ways that you were to treat the people who were in your employ. The prohibitions were things that, man, you've you got to be really careful with these. But they even included historical lessons, things about the Jewish people, diet, restrictions on foods that you could eat, how you would handle yourself in business, what you did if you lent someone money, what would happen if your cow bumped into someone else's cow and knocked it over while it's pregnant and the cow and the calf died. I mean, it was super specific. The reason this is important is to put it into the context of understanding the utter complexity of trying to live your life without the grace of God. Now, most of us don't do real good with the Ten Commandments. Amen? I don't know how many of you struggle with telling the truth 100% of the time, but I'm guessing it's probably quite a few of you. I don't know how many of you actually covet other people's things. I'm guessing it's quite a few of you and your believers. Amen? Now imagine that your whole life consisted of trying to take these 613 commands and just accomplish those when you can't keep the original 10. How do you think you'd feel about yourself? I know how I'd feel about myself. I am D-E-A-D dead. This ain't happening. I'm in trouble. And that's exactly the context of this passage. Except in an infinitely greater way. You see, because when you think about it, even those 613 commandments... And whether they were the mandates or the prohibitions or the scriptural laws or the countless additions that the rabbis had made, the Pharisees made some, the Sadducees made some, the the Sanhedrin came up with some, 
Every time you turned around? You remember why Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about the way they give? He says, you, you, guys, you guys work it out to where you tithe of your mint and your cumin. Ladies, how many of you have a spice rack in your home? Show me your hands. How many would like to go every Sunday and go into your spice rack, pour the spice out on the counter, and divide up one-tenth of the spices in the cabinet? Probably not going to be very many of you are going to fulfill that, right? But they were meticulous about that while missing the weightier matter of the law, which was love. So this passage takes us back to that hopeless place of trying to live our lives without the grace of God. Because when I start thinking about dividing up the spice cabinet, when I start thinking about, well, I hope my dog doesn't bite somebody because uh, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to go before the religious court and figure out some kind of way to, to reconcile this. Now, bear in mind that at that time, the death penalty stood for a lot of things that you'd kind of be like freaked out over right now. If we told you the state of California implemented the death penalty for something like adultery. That was the penalty then. How about blasphemy? Blaspheming the name of the Lord was a capital crime in the Old Testament. So keep it in perspective. It helps you see the gravity of the situation about which Paul is writing. Moses has declared, even in, in Deuteronomy 27, cursed is he who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. In other words, there was an emphasis on, man, you've you got to actually do these things. You can't just, you can't just know it. You've got to do it. Otherwise, you're cursed. So as you think on these things, you, you see, Paul was basically giving us the elements of why the law is good because it exposes exactly how bad we are. How messed up we are as humankind. How completely without hope we are that we would ever be able to attain under the perfect righteousness of God by any other way than the grace of God. And so he does that in four steps. Let's look at them. Verse 7, you, you see, here's the failure. Because what happens eventually, because Paul testified, he, says, he said, whatever things were gained to me. Now remember, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a super Hebrew in that sense. He kept the law. He kept the feast days. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was absolutely, as far as a Jewish man was concerned, he was a great Jewish man. But he said, whatever things were gained to me there in Philippians 3, which we covered in that, in that time in our study in the book of Philippians, those things I've counted loss. I've counted them as rubbish, trash, garbage. Manure, I, I, I wouldn't even want to be around them. Those things which I had gained, in essence, through keeping the law in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him not having my own righteousness, he said there in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. Not having my own righteousness. You see, works-based righteousness is the foundation of every single world Religion save biblical Christianity. 100% of 
You happen to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords by grace. Every other religion is about you somehow being pleasing to God. Having some form of your own self-works, self-worth, self-ability to, to maintain and to keep a relationship with God. If you believe in a single God. If you happen to be a Hindu, that would be multiple gods. And Paul says, those things which were gained to me. Through at the time, the only other monotheistic religion. Islam would not come along for another 600 years. He says, look, those things that were gained to me through the law of Moses, through what we call the Old Testament, they can't save me. I count them as trash that I might be found in Christ. Notice it says found in. You see the law exposes our sin. It says on the contrary. There in verse 7, the second half of it. You you see the opposite is actually true. He, He says, I wouldn't even have known sin except through the law. I wouldn't have actually been able to finitely identify it. And the reason we know that is the way that we function as human beings. You see, when you don't know something is wrong, you don't know something is wrong. Amen? That's why people without Christ do all kinds of stuff, and they do it completely okay with it. They're totally fine being drunks. They're totally fine being drug addicts. They're completely okay murdering people. They're absolutely okay robbing people. They they may actually feel bad about it, but they're not looking and going, man, I'm being displeasing to God. They don't know it's sin. But when the switch goes on, when you know what God's Word says, when you understand the grace of God, all of a sudden, all that sin actually becomes sin to you. You're going, wow. It's bad enough that I'm doing these things, at least inside of me. I I had an inkling they were wrong, but now I've actually identified them. I'm actually displeasing God. So the first thing that we see is that the law exposes our sin for what it really is. I want you to begin to notice, and we'll pick this up throughout these next couple of chapters, and it really becomes evident when we get to chapter 8. Notice the personal pronouns, the eyes, the me's, the minds. The Apostle Paul is talking about himself. He said, look, I'm experiencing these things. I know these things. This is my issue. I'm in it with you. And I love that because this is the Apostle Paul. Amen? Should give you some hope. It gives me hope. He's saying, look, here's the problem with us. If you remember back in chapter 2, we begin to recognize that our conscience even bears witness, accusing, defending, you know, when you think of things, you ever had that little fight within yourself? This is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. This is right. Very often that happens in relationship. It seems like, well, I, I'm pretty sure I love this guy. I'm pretty sure I love this girl. And you get to that place that you really shouldn't go. And you're kind of like, well, I don't know if I love my, maybe I do, but maybe I don't. But I'm not really sure if it's really love. And then all of a sudden you read your Bible and you go, oops, that's way too far. 
It exposes the sin. The relationship's not wrong. It's where the relationship is gone that's wrong. And so the Word of God comes along, and as we're studying on Sunday mornings, in our sanctified lives that we now live in Christ Jesus, he sets the boundary. He says, here's where it is. And if you go past this, this is wrong. It's sin. It exposes it. Now all of a sudden you know the boundaries. And so you begin to respond differently to that stimuli. You begin to think differently about the things that you're doing. You see, the real battle with sin is not all the stuff in our world. Can we get this right tonight? The real battle with sin for believers is not all the stuff in the world. It's your own heart. It's what our Bible says. Yes, the world is worse than it's ever been. But the same God that created the heavens and earth is still in you. The same power of the Holy Spirit is available to you. You still are capable of withstanding the temptation of sin. No matter what's on the outside, the problem is on the inside. That's the issue. The issue is not a lack of power on God's part. And it's not an overemphasis of the problems that the world, the flesh, and the devil are throwing at you. Sin problem is an internal problem. That's why even the prophet Jeremiah said that that our hearts need to be circumcised. We need a new fleshy tablet of our heart, not a stony one that doesn't hear what God has to say. Counseling, therapy, strong willpower, all those things are capable of modifying behavior, but they can't change your heart. The problem is the heart. That's why people go back to those things. Unless the heart is changed, unless there's an identification of the problem that's real, then you won't fix the problem. Now, most of you understand that here in our coastal waters, that's one of the largest populations of great white sharks anywhere in the world. don't know whether you knew that or not, but right off our coast, they're out there. So here's what happens. I just told you that. So if you've got a boat, you're going to go swimming. You probably don't want to do so with blood on you because you're in water with great white sharks. Now, the sharks are always out there, and they won't eat you. But if you go in the water with them doing something you're not supposed to do, you may kind of be in parts. You don't want that. Where's the problem? The problem's internal. You see, I have to choose to swim in the ocean the right way. So I stay near the beach where the sharks aren't. I don't go out there with, you know, a black bag of plasma trailing behind me. It's internal. It's a battle for my mind, for my heart. You see, the Jewish people during Jesus' time thought that they had that external righteousness that could kind of overcome that. That somehow if you just changed the outside, that that would prevent anything from happening. And it didn't work. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most striking things in it said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered him. If you look on a woman to lust, you have 
committed adultery with her. Now, was he saying that those two things were synonymous? They were completely equal? No, he wasn't. He was saying the problem is when you do that, you're admitting that your heart is not right and your mind is not right, and the mere fact that you're struggling with it means there's an issue that needs to be made right with God. And so he's saying, look, no amount of you putting little pieces of Scripture inside of little boxes and putting them on your head, or as the the Jewish men still do to this day, they'll tie a phylactery around their left wrist, a little box, and we'll have four passages of Scripture in there. They come from Deuteronomy 6 and Numbers 15. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And, and they would recount that over and over and over. You know what? That doesn't make you holy. Repetition doesn't make you holy. Phylacteries don't make you holy. Mezuzahs on your doorpost will not make you holy. They will not change the inside. Are they inherently wrong? Absolutely not. It's still the word of God. But all that stuff on the outside can't change what's in here. So what happens is the law, instead of being something that we put on a doorpost, needs to be something that we put on our hearts. The second thing, the law arouses our sinfulness. I shared with you last week, I'm just one of those people. I I have, if, if it says don't pick the flowers, I'm looking for the ones that have already fallen on the ground. Maybe that doesn't count as picking. Anybody else do that? Freeway signs, says 55, well, 57 and a half. No one will write me a ticket for 57 and a half. Anybody else do that? You can say yes. I'll mock you, but say yes anyway. Yeah, we do that, don't we? When there's a sign and it says don't do this, what is your almost instantaneous natural inclination? It's innate within us to go, well, I wonder why it's like that. You know, God said we could eat of every tree of the garden except for this one. I wonder why he said that. I wonder what he's hiding. Man, that fruit must taste really good. You know, he's not going to miss one apple. You see the problem? And before you get all holy, none of you would have done any different. You'd have been right there with Adam and Eve. You'd have been over there plucking them off the tree, filling up a basket. The rest of you guys was her. The woman you gave me. Look, the law arouses our sinfulness. It kind of gets our juices flowing a little bit, doesn't it? Because you start to think, because inside of you dwells no good thing, that no good thing is going, I'd like to be outside right now, thank you very much. And so the second thing the law does is it arouses that. And here's why this is important in the preaching of the gospel. Because until someone understands that they are a sinner, they will never understand that they need a Savior. So you want the law to arouse that sinful nature. Go, man, what's up with you? Why why are you even thinking that? You know why? Because you're a sinner. You need Jesus. 
Because you're going to keep staying a sinner, just saying. The question is, are you going to be a saved sinner, which makes you a saint, or are you going to be a condemned sinner, which makes you an ain't? Are you in? Are you out? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? You see, the law does that. Because here's what happens. When you start to look at what the law says about people who love the Lord, you get a pretty clear description of the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves. There's an interesting story, and, and I'd encourage all, it's a classic, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. There, there's, a, there's a word picture that's given in there, and it's a very rich allegory, and it, and it uses this, this person, Christian, who's inside this large dust-covered room of the interpreter's house, and, and, and he's talking about the dust that's in there. And a man comes in representing the law of God. He begins to sweep, and as he sweeps, and he sweeps, and he sweeps. Maybe some of you have had this. Have you ever noticed how when you sweep in a dusty place, you never get the dust up? Because it stirs up the dust. The dust then flies into the air. You don't pick it up at all, and it ends up settling right back down where you just swept. That's what the law of God does. It's like God's broom. It comes into your life and it begins to sweep and it stirs up the dust. But only grace can cleanse your heart. Otherwise, your, your closet stays dirty. It stays dusty. You, you need a wet down from the Holy Spirit to get that dust down where you can kind of scrape it up with a spatula. You see, sin is in us. And we identify it because of the law, and it gets stirred up. And all of a sudden, we're like, man, I, I got a problem with sin. Well, praise God, you also have the answer to that sin problem. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. The third thing that happens is that the law actually ruins sinners. Here's what happens. And the, one of the greatest pictures in the entire Bible is actually found in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is, is being called of the Lord and as he sees this picture of heaven, as the as a cherubim goes to the altar and brings this coal and singes his lips, he says, Woe to me, for I am undone. When he sees the holiness of God's word and God's law and God's character that comes and touches him, he says, I am undone. I don't even know what to say about this, God. I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. You, you see, what happens is, is that as we understand the role of the law in our life, it just ruins us. We become undone. And the reason that's good is because then you realize you can't trust your emotions. And you can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your mind even at times. Some of us can't trust our mind most of the time. You, you can't trust in the flesh. Because as Paul's already said, by the works of the flesh, no one is justified, made right before God. So what happens is, is I get officially ruined. I'm like, man, there's no way that this is going to work out in my favor if all I'm trying to do is keep the law. Because the law is good. But me, not so much. You know, in, in our day and time, there's a tremendous emphasis on grace. And there should be. 
Praise God for his grace that is greater than all of our sins. Amen, church? Amen. Because if you don't know that grace, then you don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you have bypassed the only way whereby anyone can be saved. So praise God for the love and praise God for the grace, but praise God for the law. Because the law ruins me, the old me. That wicked, ugly, old person that I used to be before I met Jeff. The real Jeff, the one that saved, the one that is now. Because there was another Jeff, and he was carnal and wicked and didn't know the Lord and did everything that he wanted to do his way. But when I came face to face with God's truth and God's law and his holiness and his justice, and ultimately, here it comes. Nobody likes to use this word in church anymore. His wrath. The wrath of God, remember chapter 1, is poured out on all unrighteousness. So if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, you're still floundering around in that unrighteousness. There's going to be a day and time when you are going to Feel the wrath of God. You see, the law ruins me. It says, oh, man, I am toast. I am done. My goose is cooked. My chicken is fried. I'm over. I can't do this on my own. There is no pleasing God. And that which I used to try and be and do... You see, because at the end of the day, every one of us, just like Lucifer in Isaiah 14. Now, you may have never thought you'd like to become your own God, but most of us lived our lives, in essence, trying to be exactly that, didn't we? Pleasing yourself, doing whatever feels good, feels right, looks right, sounds right, whatever was right to us, that was right as far as we were concerned. We were existentialists. We were philosophically atheists before we met Jesus. We're wandering around going, I don't even know if there is a God. And if there is, I'm not sure I like him. But then the law comes along, and the old you that you used to worship is ruined. No hope. And I love that, because you've got to start looking for another answer, Amen. What happened to almost every person in here? You looked at the old life. You looked at the old way. You looked at the way you used to be. And you said, man, I am a wreck. I am a ruin. I am undone. What am I going to do? I cannot save myself. I keep the very things that we're going to get to chapter 8 that are so beautiful. Those very things which I will not to do. Those things I do. Anybody in here ever done that? Oh, hallelujah. Praise God for grace. Amen. You see, you were ruined. The law does that. Shows you exactly how ruined you are. And by the way, the term self-righteousness is actually a contradiction in terms to a Christian. Because you're supposed to be dead to self, and the only righteousness you have is Christ. So there is no self-righteousness. Amen? So if you meet somebody and they look self-righteous, you might want to tell them that. There are no such thing as self-righteous Christians. It's an impossibility. 
because our righteousness is defined by Christ, so you can't do it yourself. It's an impossibility. The fourth and final thing is the law shows us how bad the problem really is. Oh, praise God for this final point. There are verses 12 through 13. He says, therefore, the law is holy. The law is holy. You know what? The law is still holy. Do you ever think, you, do you wander around every once in a while and go, you know what? God's law is still holy. God's word is holy. God himself is actually holy. And when you use that term, holy, you're assigning in a single word all of the characteristics about which we could assign to God. Every last thing. And there's so many of them that we in our little finite human minds can't actually come to the total conclusion necessary to understand what holiness is because it can only be given to God. Only God is holy, period. So if God is holy and he commands perfect holiness to be in his presence, and the law shows us that we're not holy, praise God that the law shows us exactly how bad the problem is. Amen? Here's why. Because it leaves you needing grace, which is a free gift. Amen? You you see, if you were trying to figure a way out to get there yourself, here's what's going to happen. You're going to figure out that you can't do it. It's an impossibility. And some people would get closer than others, but nobody in here is ever going to be perfect. You're not going to be what God has commanded because he said of us as his people, be ye holy for I am holy. So if he says that, and then he shows us what that looks like through the law, And then you look at it and you go, wow, this is a big problem. Have any of you ever endeavored to do something, build something, be something, go somewhere, that once you got engaged in it, you realized it was a complete and utter impossibility? I have. I've started projects. I've gone on adventures. I've done all kinds of stuff to where it's like, "Mm -mm, no, this is not going to happen. What happens? you immediately begin to look for a way to wind this thing down. But here's, here's what also happens. You do not achieve that goal. So for someone, when they see the law and they recognize this is an adventure, I cannot get all the way there. This is something I cannot completely become. There is no way for me to get from point A to point B. It's an impossibility. What ultimately happens is, is it shows exactly how much I need Jesus. All of a sudden, I'm going, man, I have to get from there to there. I have to. Because if I don't get all the way here, then I do stay all the way there. If I'm not completely saved, then I am completely damned. If I'm not freed by the grace of God, then I have to live my life by God's righteousness in my flesh. Which is impossible. And so I then know exactly how bad this problem is that I face. Paul's point is we are utterly sinful. We're wrecks. I love amazing grace that saved 
a wretch like me. Put my name in there. I'd be happy if the entire world, every time they sang that song, and saved a wretch like Jeff. I would. I'd consider an honor. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Glory. Because the problem was that bad. Now, here's the crazy thing. You see, some people, before they realize what the law actually says, they're thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody this week. I haven't ever committed adultery. I haven't really stolen anything. All of my lies are white lies. Most of my covetousness is for a reason. My bitterness is definitely for a reason. My hatred is really for a reason. Do you get where I'm going? It's an impossible mess. You see, you might pass the Ten Commandments. Let's just say you could. Let's say somehow you escape the thou shalt have no other God before me part. So whatever you've stuck on the throne of your heart, we're going to give you that one as a freebie. And we're going to, you've kept the Sabbath your entire life. But you know what? You won't forgive your parents. You refuse. You've been harboring bitterness in your heart for 20 years. You are so mad at your siblings because they got to go to college and you didn't and you have been jealous since day one. Oh, that little bit of garbage you got going on at work where you've been kind of cheating on your time card. Or those tax forms you filled out with those 14 dependents that you don't have. (laughs) How bad's the problem? How bad's the problem? The problem's that bad and infinitely worse. Because what the law says is God actually sees the intent of the heart of man. Not just the actions. Not just the actual things you really hang on to. But even why you hang on to them in the first place. Those little pieces of your character that are, they're pretty ugly. Oh, praise God for the grace of God. Amen. That's why he says, look, the law's good. The law's good. Because, because that alone, when I look at it, I'm crying out, grace, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. That's why, that's why that cry, Lord, remember the, the cry of the tax collector? Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the cry of every person's heart. That's how you get to know Jesus. 
because you lay down all the stuff that you trusted in, all the junk that you used to hold dear. In essence, we're such a wretched mess. If, if your sin was left unchecked, you would end up just like the devil himself. You'd be looking to be your own God. And because of grace, because what grace does for us and to us and in us, it takes that heart of stone and returns it to a heart of flesh. It takes that self-sufficiency and makes us sufficient only in him. So the law is actually really good. It's still a standard. Praise God, we're no longer bound to keep it. It's been kept for us by grace. But it's still the standard. And we're supposed to be exactly as it says, if we can. Blameless before a holy God is what God asked of us. And he gives us the way to do that. And it's called grace. Amen? Would you stand and bring the worship team back out? And I I, want to make this offer to you tonight. Because maybe there's somebody in here and you've come to terms with your own sinfulness. You've recognized that you're ruined. And you didn't know that before you got here. You came in innocent. You, you came with somebody. And you thought you were okay because you were better than other people. You weren't as utterly sinful as maybe somebody you know. I'm going to have some pastors come forward right now, and I, I simply want to make the opportunity for you to stop trusting you, to recognize that there's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. You, you can't get there by good works. It's an impossibility. All the law will do is show you your sinfulness. It will show you your destruction. It'll show you you're ruined. It'll show you you can't get there, but you will never be able to keep it. But Jesus kept it for you at the cross. That's why he said, I came to complete. So church, if you'd bow your heads, I want to pray. There's anybody here tonight, and you'd like to know Jesus, and you don't know him. I'm just going to ask you right where you're standing, just slip your hand up in the air. And I want to pray with you right where you are. Anyone at all. Anyone in here doesn't know the Lord. Because at the end of days, you are sinful. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Going to wait a minute or two. You don't know the Lord, but I see that hand as well. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Keep your hands up for just a moment. No one looking around, please. Anyone else? Anyone else? Those that raised your hands, would you just pray with me? Pray out loud. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. 
I admit that I can't save myself. And I know I've been wrong. I'm asking you to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from my unrighteousness. I voluntarily give you my life. Promise to walk with you. Thank you for your grace that's able to save even me. Pray that you would write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Create a new heart in me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome to the family of God.